everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guest today is Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel, the leading payroll connectivity API. Pinwheel's mission is to create a fairer financial system by enabling consumers to share their payroll and income data with financial institutions, which then use this data for direct deposit switching, income and employment verification, earned wage access, and more. To date, Pinwheel has raised $77 million from leading investors. Prior to Pinwheel, Kurt has been involved in multiple startup acquisitions, first Idean and later Blux. In today's episode, we discuss the need for a fairer credit system for consumers, how Pinwheel is enabling earned wage access the right way, Kurt's brief foray into bodybuilding, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this podcast today. I am calling from my apartment in East Village here in New York. Awesome. We're thrilled to have you here today. To start with, are you able to give an overview of your career to date and how you ended up in fintech? Totally. It's not a particularly long one, so this shouldn't take that long. Uh, um, I like to say I'm kind of constitutionally unemployable, uh, meaning that basically my whole career has been in startups. I actually started my first one when I was at UCLA. Um, and then kind of from there went to another startup and another startup, and then eventually uh, ended up at a startup called Lux, which did on-demand parking. And that's when I uh, joined forces with my co-founder, Curtis, who was the founder uh, of Lux. Um, and so that's it, it was not fintech at all, actually. Um, it was That was on-demand logistics. Before that, it was a design uh, startup. And then before that, it was actually a hardware that would attach to your bike to prevent bike theft. So I think the only common thread I can say is I love solving problems. And the problem-solving gene is, I guess, what got me into fintech and real today. Sounds like an interesting journey. Talking about solving problems, can you tell us a bit about Pinwheel's mission and the problems you're trying to solve? Yeah, totally. So I guess I should start very quickly with our origin story, which is, as mentioned, I have actually two co-founders. One is Curtis and the other one is uh, Anish. And so the three of us started this journey by trying to actually build our own fintech app. So hopefully your audience is familiar with what a HSA is, a health savings account. Um, if anyone has ever had one, they know that it's a terribly hard thing to use. And actually worse yet, there are the majority of Americans in the country actually live paycheck to paycheck. And so they don't have the cash flow to actually be able to pre-fund and use the account. So we realized you could actually solve this problem by automating all of it. So we built that app, brought it to market, and then realized very unfortunately that while there was a lot of demand and it was fantastic, everyone was like, hey, I want to use this thing. Do you guys support my payroll system, which was like ADP or paychecks or whatever? And uh, we did. <laughs> we had a very, very basic beta with Gusto and a couple of other like really small payroll systems. And we're like, this is not going to work. And so we were trying to build, we were trying to like, we spent all of our engineering hours building integrations versus building product, which obviously isn't great early on in the company's um, kind of life cycle. So we tried to look for a solution out there and couldn't find one. And then realized that there was actually hundreds of thousands of companies out there like us that needed access into these payroll systems in order to build what they wanted to build. And it was at that point that we sunsetted the app 
and really focus on being the infrastructure provider, unlocking the data around who someone is, how much money they make, where they work, and making it really easy for uh, other companies like us to use that data to build the financial products of the future. Our core belief is that what we are providing is a foundational piece of infrastructure that will be used by every single builder, innovator, company in financial services, big or small, in the next five or 10 years. And the reason why we feel so confident about this is when we came out of stealth in June of 2020, we had no PR strategy, like literally zero. <laughs> we like begged our friends at Tech Control, like, please, for the love of God, write us an article. We desperately need leads. And they were like, if you stop annoying us, we'll write one. We're like, great. So we uh, got this article published. And in the first 72 hours, we had 133 organic inbounds from like Chase, Wells Fargo, City, BOA, to all the big uh, fintechs like Square, PayPal, Credit Karma, SoFi, et cetera. And it made us realize that if you look at the roadmaps of all of these like really big players in financial services and in fintech, for the next five to 10 years, more than half of the really big product bets they want to make fundamentally cannot exist without us. And that's when we realized, oh, like this is the mission. This is the vision. It's to help the people who are pushing the envelope be able to actually build the products that will better serve customers and lead to better financial outcomes for them down the line. Um, I forgot to talk about use cases, but I know a few I'm going to touch on that too. I was just about to ask that. Yeah, I think it'd be good, I think, for our listeners to understand beyond the HSA what the main use cases you see for the API at the moment. Totally. So in the simplest terms, what we do is we provide connectivity. It's kind of like a two-sided marketplace, right? On one side is the supply side, which is the ADPs of the world. They have really valuable data. And then on the demand side, we have the big the big banks and fintechs and lenders that need that data. And we have that connectivity point that allows them to access that information. Why is that valuable? If you think about what you do in financial services, everything revolves around making decisions off of data, right? If I'm going to apply for a mortgage or a, an apartment or an auto loan or a credit card, they're looking at me and saying, is this person someone we should approve and give this product to? And the problem right now is a lot of the data that you need to make a good decision isn't in the hands of people making a decision, right? And so we're making it really easy to have that data all in front of you at the point where it really matters, right? So you can instantly verify identity, income, employment in real time, which has never existed before. And so it's like a verification use case. There's another use case, which uh, has been where we've actually seen the most traction around direct deposits, right? So um, not super complicated. If you're a big bank, you the, the, the holy grail is getting direct deposits, right? Because that leads to a super high engagement, high LTV customer. And then it leads you to be able to then start to really build on that relationship, right? Like, well, if I, if your deposits are here and you're spending money with us, I make money on your interchange. And then I also can start to upsell you into a credit card and eventually an auto loan and a mortgage or whatever else, right? But it all starts with direct deposits. And the problem is direct deposits are really hard to capture because you're either having to use a paper form or you're having to kind of self-serve on some like portal. It's really clunky, right? So with our API access, we can abstract away all the complexity and condense it down to just one click. 
And then you embed it in the account onboarding flow where there's the highest intent, right? So you sign up for a Cash App account, for example, or Chime account. You create an account. They say, great. If you go ahead and move your direct deposit over, we'll be able to you know, give you early wage advance or all these other really cool products. At that point, Pinwheel experience pops up. You say, yes, I want to move some or all of my paycheck. And then we take care of all the complexity in the back end to make sure that their deposit gets switched. So in the first month, we're able to help our customers get a 20% increase in direct deposits um, and up to 75% across their lifetime. I also saw a recent survey that you did, which was looking at some of the blind spots in the financial services industry. Are you able to talk a bit about what you found in the survey and the changes you expect to see and how Pinwheel fits in with that? Yeah, absolutely. So we interviewed 2,000 plus uh, consumers uh, about their you know, financial lives. And especially there's always been this big debate around consumer permission data around, do consumers even know what they're like doing, right? Like when they give their data, are they aware of what they're giving and why they're giving it? And if they even see that it helps them or not. And I think the most telling stat amongst all the data that we're able to gather is that more than 80% of respondents said that they were willing to give their information about how much they make and where they work, you know, their income and employment data, especially if it meant that they were able to access better financial products, right? Either a lower interest rate or just something that would make their lives easier, right? And so when you think about that and you combine it with the fact that that data actually does do that work, it's so obvious and a no-brainer that it should be included everywhere and it's not, right? Like the example that I always love to give is when you like we see this all the time. There's like a teacher or a nurse who's been in the same job for four or five years, right? What does that mean? Super, super stable income, right? Very low volatility, the ideal borrower that you would want to, you know, work with. The issue is because of the way that the FICO and credit score system works, they have like a score of like 550 or something really bad, right? However, they actually perform much closer to a 700 or higher. They just need a chance to be able to prove it. And what we need to do is to show that lender or that bank, here is five past years of pay. Look how stable this is. You really should be lending to them, right? And closing that data gap is what can really help, number one, our customers and the businesses out there in the market today actually build better businesses, right? Higher top line, lower margin, lower risk. It's a win-win, right? The consumers naturally can access better, cheaper financial products as well. And then the whole system basically becomes more efficient uh, and reduces like risk and fraud, et cetera, along the way as well. There are a few fintechs out there trying to serve that segment of consumers that don't have access to traditional credit. Have you seen many major players start to try and use payroll data yet? Or are you still trying to get them on board and show them how they could use it? In our first couple of years, all of our customers were fintechs, naturally, right? Like you, anyone who tries to go to market with the the older institutions, generally, uh, I feel like have poor outcomes because not that they're not great customers, it's just because there's their speed of adoption is never as fast as needed to be right in a game of survival. And so we spent the first couple of years really fine tuning what we had with our uh, fintech customers. And then the past, I would say six to nine months, 
we really started to see a major sea change where the traditional FIs were like, wait a second, like we need this too. And it's happening a lot faster than we initially anticipated, which has been great. And I think you can look at a lot of uh, just the way that they even talk about it, right? Like Jamie Dimon, I think in an earnings call last year was like, hey, like we should be scared shitless of the fintechs out there. Like they are building products at a clip that we can't keep up with. And if we want to win, we have to learn to play their game and to build new products for our customers. Or we're going to lose them, right? And so I think we're really at this precipice where there's the right people internally. They really get it and we're really starting to move. So I'm really excited for the next few years to see how this all develops. Me too. Um, And then looking at the fintech market more broadly, have you seen any market trends or shifts in how companies are using data such as that provided by Pinwheel? And what do you sort of think that the future will look like? It's a really good question. I would say a couple things. Number one is, you know, you can't go a, an hour without hearing someone say the word macro, right? So I think just to level set here, I think what we're seeing in the market right now is, you know, we've been in a 13-year bull run, largely driven by uh, declining interest rates, right? To the point where there was literally at one point zero interest. Now it's the kind of the regression to the mean where we have rising rates. And I think for most folks, what that means is less of a focus on pure growth, which has always been kind of the shibboleth, right? For especially people in tech, which was just like grow at all costs. It's now really, hey, like let's talk about quality of revenue and quality of that growth and margin management, especially. And that translates to at least for banks and lenders specifically, a keen eye on profitability, which for most people means really good risk management. And uh, along those lines, really good fraud management and really good uh, like firming up cash flows and deposit growth, right? So the good news for us, and I think for people who kind of saw a bit ahead here is that it's now like, hey, deposits are now more important than ever. Let's firm up the balance sheet, right? And like we, with our deposit switching product, have really been able to help drive that. Two is, okay, let's reduce uh, losses here. How do we do that? We need better data. We need real-time data to actually understand what's going on in this consumer's life, right? And what we've been able to really help with is also see that this person is maybe they've unfortunately been laid off or that they've been furloughed or in some way had their employment impacted. It doesn't actually help the lender to just let it default. If you can get advanced signal months ahead of time, which we can provide, you can actually say, hey, wait a second, let's pause or give them a loan modification, give them time to get back on their feet. And then once they do, you actually can recover much more than selling that loan for pennies in the dollar to a collector, right? Or to a collection agency. And so there's like this element of real-time risk management that we've been able to really help with. Um, same thing on the fraud side, right? Like now more than ever, fraud's been a really, really big thing. And uh, it's, especially with crypto, um, it's been like fraud rates are at all-time highs. And so I think there's a really a keen eye placed on 
how do we minimize risk across the board? Because that's actually the biggest driver of loss rates. Thinking about that, then what do you think the next generation of use cases for the API would look like? Does Pinwheel have any new use cases or products in the pipeline? Let's, let's talk about this chronologically. So we have the direct deposit use case. We have the verification use case. The thing that we launched last year that it's taken up a lot of traction is around earned wage access, right? So there's always been this uh, holy grail type uh, notion around, can we get people paid every day? Right. It's kind of an abomination that, you know, you work a day like today, but you don't get paid until two weeks later. Right. Um, and historically, the way that people have done this is I'm going to go to an employer like Walmart and say, if you Walmart, give me your data. I can then offer this service to your people. And the way that I can make money is I'm going to charge you Walmart to provide the service because the ROI for you is in the form of employee engagement and retention and what have you. Right which is okay. It kind of makes sense, but it's really hard to scale that. And what we've realized is we can actually bring this directly to the consumer because we connect not only to payroll systems, but also in the time and attendance platforms as well. So I know if, you know, if you, Kaylee, sign up for a Chime account, for example, right? And you want to access your wages today, you say, yes, I want, you know, my pay advance today. We can look and say, okay, we know that Kaylee worked her shift today at Chipotle. We know that she's still actively employed. And we know that she's going to get paid in two weeks. And we can claw back those funds in two weeks with our direct deposit rails. So you put those three things together, you have earned wage access as a feature, right? And so we can we embed that into a bunch of our customers' apps. And that's how we're helping folks kind of like make sure that they have the best suite of products going into the future. So that's one example. Another one is around taxes. Well, first of all, we see W-2s. So we can literally just like help people automatically get that data into the right place, whether it's TurboTax or wherever else, and file their taxes automatically. So that there's a really easy use case there. And then there's also, I think, add-on products to taxes that are really exciting. So I'll give you one example. A lot of folks, again, live paycheck to paycheck. And if they can get their tax refunds ahead of time, they would love to. How do you do that? Well, you need to know where they're going to end the year at so you can make an estimate about what their tax refund is going to be. And then you can confidently be able to afford them that money ahead of time. Right. So, what is a W 2? It's basically just an amalgamation of all of your paychecks across the year. And so, because we have real time visibility, we can see every two weeks what each paycheck looks like. By the time June comes around, we can say, okay, we can say with fairly high confidence that you're going to end the year at, you know, a hundred thousand in, in income and then look at everything else and, and say, okay, you can probably re, uh, forward them this amount of money. Right. And so there are kind of tax related use cases that we're excited about as well that we're bringing to market. And there's a whole more, but I think the idea is basically leveraging all the data, which is way more than we thought was there originally in these payroll systems and income sources to then be able to build new products and underwrite uh, in new ways to provide advanced liquidity or in some capacity, just a better experience for consumers. On the EWA front, I'm curious about how you're monetizing this. You said historically this was something that the companies would pay for for their employees to have. Does this sort of shift that towards the bank? Yes. So because we are a service provider to the banks, 
they pay us for the data pipelines to then be able to enable the service for their consumers. So the reason this is such a, this is a really good question. And the reason why the shift is so uh, kind of monumental, at least from our perspective, is the demand for these products is at the financial institution, right? You go to your bank or you go to your fintech app or fintech and banking products. You don't go to your employer and say, hey, give me a bank account, right? Like, like, and so it's always been weird that you kind of go to your employer for certain things, but then for other things, you go somewhere else. Consolidating everything into one location is really, really important. And it's also just naturally the mental model that consumers have, right? So when you're looking at your bank account, you're saying, wow, like I could really use my money today instead of having to wait for two weeks, click a button, it shows up the next day or even immediately. Um, that's a magical experience, right? And so uh, to answer your question, yes, it's the banks paying for this. And I think it is what should happen if you're building the system the right way. I think that's great because it means that more people can access this because they can go to their bank. They can switch bank if their bank doesn't offer it. They're not dependent upon working for a company that's large enough to care about enabling it. Um, switching gear a little bit, I know that Pinwheel has seen huge growth since launch. I saw you had a 400 times increase in the processes executed per month. You raised $50 million Series B just six months after your Series A. What do you think are some of the key factors that have contributed to Pinwheel being so successful? Uh, I say this in keeping in mind any potential future founders who are listening to this podcast. We've been in an unprecedented fundraising market over the past couple of years, right? And it was a world where if you had good metrics and a good team, which obviously I I drink the most Kool-Aid, but I certainly believe we do. Uh, it wasn't really, you know... Like I, we didn't run a full process. We were preempted. A lot of other funders that I know at that time were also preempted as well because the market was just crazy. People were just constantly trying to, you know, preempt one another to, to get into the quote unquote best companies or best rounds. Right. And so I just want to caveat that and say, you know, I've talked to a lot of founders who are fundraising now and are like, oh man, like what was your secret? What was the magic? And I'm like, I got to be honest, I don't want to take too much credit here. The market itself was just, you know, a different beast at that time. Um, but with that in mind, I would say uh, the number one thing is focus. And it's the lesson that I think I learned the hard way because I get really bad shiny object syndrome. My team knows this, so it's not going to be a surprise to, to them as well. And frankly, I think a lot of founder CEOs have the same issue as well. Because we're constantly looking at the future and saying, you know, what else can, what else can we do? Um, but there's just something so powerful about like, just make the main thing the main thing, right? Like figure out in the business model, what is the thing that really matters? It's the reason why I think all the best businesses have a North Star metric, right? Like Airbnb's is nights booked. Facebook's was, I don't know if it's but it was the longest time, uh, DAU and MAU, right? And like, when you keep that main thing the main thing, Everything else that doesn't meaningfully move the needle on that main thing becomes a distraction. And you can very clearly say, don't do that. It sounds cool. It sounds important, but it's nowhere near as important as getting that main thing to, to be the best it can possibly be. You talked about your North Star metric. I'm curious, what is your North Star metric? And has that always been the same as you were building Pinwheel? Yes. Our North Star metric is conversion, meaning for every uh, user who encounters Pinwheel, 
what percent of them are actually able to connect their accounts and be able to, you know, switch a direct deposit or, you know, share their data, what have you, right? I wish it was 100%. It is not. <laughs> but that for us, you know, that's the rising tide that lifts all boats, right? Because the conversion, the higher it goes, leads to higher transaction volumes, it leads to happier customers, leads to a performing product, it leads to more revenue. Um, and so for us, like the maniacal focus has just been like getting that number up as high as possible. And I saw that you recently brought on the former first ever deputy director of the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as a pinwheel advisor. Can you talk a bit about why? Yeah, I'm happy to. First of all, I just want to say that Raj is one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever met in my entire life. I remember the first time I met him, I was I was just wowed by his pure presence more than anything else. Uh, and we joke uh, that, you know, Many, many years on the Hill and in DC, you just, you naturally get forged in the fire of, of those kind of environments. So first of all, I should mention, he he was originally an angel investor. And then as we got to get to know each other better, and he really saw the vision of what we were doing, um, he came on board as a full-time, uh, or rather uh, a, a true advisor to the company. And uh, the reason why we felt so compelled to do that is because when you look at the regulatory landscape today, the thing that's popping up a lot of open finance is Article 1033 in the in Dodd-Frank, right? Which basically states that consumer financial data, no matter where it's stored, must be accessible by the consumer because it's their data, right? That's the kind of foundational argument on which Plaid exists. That's the foundational argument on which a lot of aggregators do what they do, right? Uh, the thing that is not as clearly defined in that is, well, does payroll data belong as consumer financial data, right? Because Dodd-Frank was largely intended to be governance for banks, not for the broader you know, payroll system and open finance world, right? But you can't just sit there and say, well, who you are, how much you make, where you work, that's not the consumer's data. Of course it is. And so we've been working with Raj and a good number of Senate committee members uh, on this. And it's one of those rare things that has bipartisan support, right? It's like, well, of course, this is the consumer's data. I think the thing that we are really focused on now is just proving that that data leads to tangibly better financial outcomes for consumers. And we've been able to do that. It's really interesting. Um, And looking at Pinwheel again, where do you see Pinwheel in five years from now? I love this question uh, because it hasn't changed. But for us, it's always been the same thing, which is we see ourselves as uh, just such foundational infrastructure, right? So in five years, if we're successful, every major bank and lender and fintech in the financial services world will be using Pinwheel to power their most um, mission-critical use cases and products, right? Like that's the kind of the one-liner. What that actually means, I think, for us is from a coverage perspective, we basically covered 100% of uh, workers in the country, and hopefully at that point beyond the US as well. Number two is we will have meaningfully moved the needle on the financial outcomes of consumers. So uh, whether it's you know getting widespread adoption for earned wage access the right way with no risk, or pushing forward a significant amount of underwriting and credit products that are not remotely tied to FICO because it's such a unfair mechanism for a number of people in the country. 
And we usually like to wrap up with a personal question. So what's a fun fact about you that most people wouldn't know? Ooh, okay. This started in my uh, undergraduate years and then I moved into a bit of my postgrad years as well. Um, I got really into bodybuilding because it was, <laughs> I see you laughing and you're justified in your reaction. Um, there's something so meritocratic about bodybuilding. Just follow me here. <laughs> like, uh, like, okay, I want to grow this muscle. I want to, I want to have a, a bigger bicep or I want to, you know, like have a, a bigger chest. You go to the gym, you do the sets, you do it like with increasing progressive weight. And then like a couple of weeks later, your biceps are bigger. Your chest is bigger. And like, when I saw that input output as such a hyper efficient feedback loop, I was like, wow, like it's, a, it's addicting, right? Usually it takes you way longer to like achieve kind of the things you, you want to achieve in your life. But it, like, it was such a short timeline for me. I was like, wow, I found that so rewarding. And then I kind of, as I think many folks who are somewhat compulsive in what they do, got into a bit of a rabbit hole where I got like really into uh, like I was in the gym six days a week. I was like really hardcore dieting. And I got to one point, um, maybe like 185 pounds right now. I got to like 215 and like sub 10% body fat. And like then I realized it was like, <laughs> I was like, I think I got what I need out of this. And this is the quality of life here is really diminishing. Um, and at that point, I, was like, I should probably move on to something a bit more productive. I don't know what I expected for that fact, but that was fun. <laughs> I'm glad I could ask and join you today. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been great hearing about Pinwheel. Thank you, Kaylee. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello.